Welcome to our program. I'm your host, Patrick Ryan, President of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. We're in our 12th month of war in Ukraine following Russia's unprovoked invasion of its sovereign neighbor. In that time, we witnessed attacks and war crimes against the Ukrainian people, against their cities, transportation infrastructure, the energy grid, ports, and schools. The World Economic Forum said last summer 6.6 million Ukrainians had fled the country. 3.5 million to Poland alone. Of those, 94% were women and children. Today, we will discuss the humanitarian impact on Ukraine of President Vladimir Putin's and Russia's ruthless campaign. I'm pleased to introduce our guest today from Kiev, uh, excuse me, from Kiev. We're joined by Anna Novosad, who is former Minister of Education and Science in the Ukraine government. And she's working as an activist, uh, working to restore uh, schools and other facilities for children in areas damaged by the Russian attacks. Anna has a Nashville, Nashville connection, having participated in the Vanderbilt University Humphreys Fellow Program. It was cut short last year by the invasion and her desire to return to her homeland. We're also joined by Elena Bird and Dr. Madeline Bird uh, in Nashville and Charleston, respectively. This mother-daughter team didn't wait to watch the news about the war in Ukraine. They took off to Warsaw, Poland to aid refugees from Ukraine who sought protection and medical aid in a safe place. Both are Nashvillians. Anna, Elena, and Madeline, thank you for taking time today to share your insights and experiences. Thank you for having us. Let's start in uh, Kyiv with uh, Anna Novosad. Uh, Anna, you've been in the uh, middle of Kyiv during the recent waves of Russian missile uh, strikes and around the country to observe conditions uh, in other areas. And I'll mention to our viewers, uh, you're currently in your car because you had to drive to a district in Kyiv that had electrical power uh, for the cell phone towers. And you're joining us uh, in, in somewhat uh, different circumstances than we normally uh, connect, but uh, we appreciate uh, the difficulty in, in making the connection from Kiev, and, and thank you for uh, for being with us. Uh, can you talk to us about what's uh, what's happening now? What you're experiencing in Kiev? What's uh, uh, the daily uh, routine there and around the country when you visit other areas? What what sorts of things do you see? Uh, we know that uh, the campaign has uh, taken many dimensions. Uh, the brave Ukrainian forces have made advances in the east. Uh, but Russia still uh, pounds uh, many Kyiv, uh, cities like Kyiv with missile strikes and against uh, energy grids and, and other facilities. So give us a sense of, of what's happening and then tell us a, a little bit more about uh, the funding that's been in the news uh, for military equipment from the West. And uh, lastly, uh, uh, we'd like to hear more about your work to restore uh, schools damaged by uh, the Russian attacks. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you very much, Patrick. Um, if I may just ask you to confirm that you hear me well. Yes, we do. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, just to um, excuse myself for, for my for our viewers and listeners, I uh, I have to join the Zoom from from my car because currently we experience for the last uh, what is it three months. Uh, Quite rough electricity outages after Russia uh, destroyed and keeps destroying uh, our energy grid. So far, around 40% of our energy plants uh, and uh, trans transmission points are are destroyed. So here in Kyiv, we have electricity only for um, 
only for uh, around sorry i have to now switch on my car because yeah light is gone yeah now it's back uh so we have electricity only for 12 hours a day and now it's a time when i don't have it so my car is the place where i still have it um yeah so about the situation um we met uh, here on uh, on this venue in in summer and for ukraine uh, i would say uh for for people here in kiev that was that wasn't Um, the the most um, uh, the most sort of um, horrible uh, battles have been unfolding unfolding there, and at some point, people maybe even started sort of uh, forgetting that we are in the middle of uh, of the war. But then, on tenth of October, uh, in the cities like um, Kyiv and in other other. Uh, a lot of areas that uh, were deemed to be uh, a little bit more peaceful. Uh, Russians started massive uh, missile terror. So since 10th of October, every week, it's like by now it's like scheduled. Um, predominantly on Mondays, uh, we have huge uh, missile strikes. So Russians launch r- roughly 70 to 100 missiles. Um, uh, all over the country, including Kyiv, predominantly targeting Kyiv. Um, infrastructure uh, sites, energy sites, uh, government, um, uh, everything that that might be deemed uh, critical, but not only. Also using a very traditional Russian tactic of just terror of civilians. They are targeting just um, regular um, residential houses, like last Sunday in Dnipro, they hit just a regular uh, nine-story building and it was gone completely with tens and tens and tens of people uh being dead so uh since uh, oh my god and now air alert is on <laughs> sorry uh today we had it quite a lot of times um but then uh yeah uh, and after missile attacks normally at night come the iranian drones this is something that we discovered during this uh, last couple of months when iran started um exporting to Russia its its drones. So these are like very cheap um, uh, solutions that fly on, uh, under cover of night on a very low uh, height and it's very hard to detect it. Uh, so our uh, anti-missile forces cannot detect it and you cannot hit it by a missile because well, missile costs like 10, 10 million dollars and this uh, drone is uh, 6,000 US dollars worse. So yeah, they usually send it like in batches of 60 or 70 or 80. And then uh, because it's so hard to discover it, uh, we have them at night all over the city. And you just hear like police uh, machines or just, you know, people with guns trying to shoot those drones from their windows. So it's, it's, uh, it's insane, you know, to think about that. I never in my life thought that would it- Iranian drones would hunt me in Kyiv and uh, try to kill me, but that's that's our current um, uh, reality. The, the regular life, you know, I think uh, we all somehow adjusted to it, to this lack of electricity, uh, lack of water, lack of mobile connection. And it's not uh, the worst thing, you know, you can adjust uh, to everything. Uh, everyone now sort of has a generator and is trying to, to hold on. 
Um, so I, I wouldn't really complain on my uh, on, on just a regular life because it's still bearable in comparison to what people live through uh, in the east or in the occupied parts uh, of south or in still occupied parts uh, in the Kharkiv region um, in the north. Um, since um, uh, since I would say August or end of July, Russia has been trying to um, completely invade and completely uh, occupy the eastern parts of Ukraine, uh, Donetsk region, Luhansk region, and uh, there is um, not very large city of Bakhmut. Uh, it's a city that before the war, before the school-scale war, had a bit more than 50,000 inhabitants. Um, we now call it the Castle Bakhmut because Russians have been trying to uh, to overtake it uh, since August, they still can't do it. The city is completely gone, like hundreds of, of cities. But for them, it became sort of like a symbol that they have to overcome. And so by now, Russians have um, mobilized and drafted for the last months more than 300,000 new soldiers that are already fighting here. And uh, soon as our intelligence says they are about to uh, mobilize, uh, as they claim, two more million uh, people. So two more million Russians we uh, expect over the course of the next year of um, in our soil. So that sort of leads me to answer about the general mood. General mood here is that, uh, you know, we are still uh, happy and grateful that we have no electricity, no water, no mobile connection, but we also have no Russians here in Kyiv and in a lot of cities of Ukraine and it's a huge part. However, we are all cognizant of the fact that the worst is yet to come. And I think everyone is preparing for the worst. Everyone is preparing for the huge battle in spring because uh, it's now obvious that Putin will not stop. And uh, just those bits of territories that they still um, keep are not enough for them. And uh, this uh, newly mobilized, newly drafted waves of Russian soldiers will just come and come and come and come. I have so many friends on the front line in the East and they say like, uh, obviously they are better prepared. In many occasions, they have better weapons by now, but there's just endless mass of Russians. So it's basically, if those of you who listen, who remember what was happening in the Second World War, it's been um, General Zhukov and tactic uh, just to, um, um, to sort of send this millions of uh, Russian, Ukrainian, Belarus, Jewish soldiers and just, uh, you know, try to overcome German Nazi with, uh, with just blood and, and millions of dead corpse. So this is again uh, happening on the same, uh, in the same territory and the same regions. And this is again, Russian um, uh, tactic. So uh, this just leads me to, to, the, to the point that we are all preparing for the worst. Uh, we are all preparing that all of us at some point, if not uh, tomorrow or next month or next half a year, year will be drafted. Uh, for in, in different roles because uh, for just uh, it's just a matter of calculation. We Ukrainians are ending sooner than Russians. We are only 35 million by now and Russians are 170-something million, right? So it's, uh, um, it's not very comparable. And um, that leads me to my last point on the war itself is that 
for us, the only way, the only way to survive and uh, for us, the only way to survive is to win, right? And the only way to win is to win next year and to have a complete victory. Complete victory means that all Russian forces have to retreat from Ukrainian territory, including Crimea. In other case, uh, this will be an endless war that we will, and if it lasts for years, we will definitely lose it. And then it will be situation, uh, if, if you can imagine like leaving to, uh, to Hitler, uh, occupied Denmark or occupied Netherlands or occupied Norway, that would be the same story. Um, so uh, having said that, I am really grateful to the to uh, your administration and your uh, bilateral support from the both parties that you have provided to us the Patriot uh, anti-missile system because only system that can protect us from ballistic missiles. Ballistic is something that you cannot shut down with regular anti-missile weapons. Uh, ballistic is something that reaches where I am in, in, in roughly three minutes from Belarus. It already happened uh, during the last uh, few days. Uh, and just today, just a few, an hour, I think, before this meeting, President Biden announced that the U.S. will provide the Abrams tanks and Germany will provide uh, new German tanks as well. And for us, it means that we have a hope and a chance to have a huge counterattack in spring and to finish this war in 2023. But this war would only be over when there is not just peace, but when there is justice and peace, because without justice, we will, uh, you know, we will have the same war in, but maybe in five to ten years' time. And a bit, uh, a few words on on what I do. So, last year, the whole, basically, uh, the uh, the main, uh, the part of 2021 and the few months of 2022, I've been in Nashville. I I was on an incredible fellowship with Vanderbilt, but then I had to return home because of the war. But since uh, my return here. Uh, since uh, Ukrainian forces liberated the north, uh, I've been trying to help uh, Ukrainian communities, Ukrainian regions and schools to uh, recover access to education. We have, uh, together with the team, established a um, uh, charitable foundation called SAFED. And our mission is to do consciously and very deliberately out of 14,000 that we had before the war are very seriously damaged. The 400 are completely gone after bombing. So for Russia, it's a very ideological war. And uh, for me, my team, and for a lot of people here in Ukraine, it's it's ideological mission to get back our kids uh, to um, education. activities that are in shelters. So we are not only trying to renew schools where it is possible, but we also arrange um, uh, shelters so uh, that they are accessible for, for learning where kids can safely stay. Uh, we are helping them to recover mentally by setting up um, uh, mental health um, programs. Uh, we are trying to help uh, recently deoccupied territories with the uh, um, basic and urgent uh, needs that they might they might have, but uh, also by helping to provide distance learning. Because usually, when if when Russians leave, that means that they also steal everything from people. They rob uh, everything they see around. Uh, so laptops and all sorts of uh, equipment that uh, people and kids might have uh, is 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 also gone usually. Um, 
together with Russians. So we try to uh, provide kids um, with that. Um, yeah, that's that's in a nutshell of, of the situation and um, what we do. And uh, I hope you heard me well because yeah, the connection is not very stable. Uh, thank you, Anna. Uh, we heard 99.9% uh, .9 of things you, you dropped out a couple of times, but we have we have the, the complete picture there. And uh, we appreciate uh, you joining us under such uh, austere conditions of power and communications. And uh, we, uh, we tip our hat to the intrepid Ukrainians who are figuring out how to use all these communication devices to keep the world informed about what's happening there. Uh, your education efforts. Uh, I know when we spoke last summer, you were working in uh, Chernayev in the north uh, of Kiev. Uh, You'd mentioned in some of the recaptured uh, areas. So uh, your education efforts are now extending to the east and south? Yes. Uh, so we are now uh, starting to operate in Mukulayev, uh, a south, southern city that uh, is now not shelled like it was for the last six months. So after Ukrainian forces liberated Kherson, uh, Russians can no longer hit by artillery Mikulayev and it is accessible uh, to people. And so our foundation uh, started operation there. Unfortunately, there are no uh, schools premises that survived. Uh, so we will, uh, the first thing that we will do and I'm traveling there next week, once again, we will look for uh, premises where we can arrange uh, sort of like digital educational centers. This will be equipped uh, premises uh, with uh, learning devices, learning materials, uh, provided tutors where kids could come and have at least a couple of hours per day of learning and uh, socialization. We will also try to help on those territories to the uh, orphanages and uh, institution, uh, institutional schools that still stayed there and there are kids who have no parents and who were um, left behind uh, and, and were uh, partially under occupation as well. Um, and apart from that, apart from the South, we are also starting to do similar things in, um, in Kharkiv region. And um, in, um, in comparison to the Northern parts that suffered only one month of, uh, if I may say so only, uh, one month of occupation and shell in these parts, east and south, they have been under those conditions for more than six months. So the situation there is much, much dire, and those kids require also much, much more psychological support. So this is what we will also try to um, bring uh, with us there. Well, th thank you for that update, and we'll, we'll talk more in our conversation after we hear from uh, Elena uh, Berg and Dr. Madeline Berg, uh, who are uh, going to be rejoining us on the screen here. And uh, uh, ladies, uh, thank you again for joining us and uh, sharing your story. Uh, I will turn it over to you, and I understand that uh, Dr. Berg will share some photos of uh, your your work at the uh, Refugee Center in, in Warsaw. Um, so Elena and Madeline, uh, the floor is yours, please. Thank you. Hey, Pat. thanks, Pat. Thank you so much for having us on your program. Anna, we can't even imagine as we sit here in the comfort of our homes, what it must be like sitting in your car in the freezing cold with no internet essentially at all. So thank you. Um, Madeline and I are going to just share with the group some slides of our experiences, it'll give you just a little bit of an overview. Madeline and I went to Poland when the war first broke out. Um, 
of course, it was February 24th. We went at the beginning of March. And uh, we went primarily because we felt a real calling. Honestly, I felt a particularly strong connection with Ukrainians, even though they're on the other side of the world in some ways from, from where I grew up. But I am Cuban, and I had to experience, unfortunately, the Fidel Castro regime, communist regime, and fled Cuba as a refugee with my family. So I understood a little bit about the potential plight anyway of the refugees. I, I really, neither Madeline nor I could imagine these experiences that, or these conditions that we saw. This is the Modlinska Expo that you've been seeing pictures of, which was one of the biggest refugee centers in Poland, it still is. We saw anywhere from five to six, 7,000 sometimes People would come on those buses being brought in from the borders, the Ukrainian border with Poland. Of course, the main uh, country that Ukrainians came to after the war was, in fact, Poland. I guess there were obviously different places that they went to as well, Romania and other countries. But we saw the majority in Poland and Warsaw specifically. So this is uh, I can just the refugees. Them, I can just of the first couple of pictures, and then my mom will talk about more of our experiences as a whole in a second. But just so you have a picture, because as they say, a picture tells a thousand words. Um, this is the refugee center that we ended up at. Um, these are just some pictures of some of the rooms in this absolutely enormous warehouse. So there were somehow dozens of rooms like this filled with beds, as you can see. Um, and here are just some kids in the refugee center. And then as my mom mentioned, um, so this, this is just a, a small, tiny example of some of the refugees who were coming in straight from the border. So these uh, yellow and red buses are the Polish government buses, which would basically go to the border crossing points and then they'd need to take the refugees somewhere. And so they'd be coming in and out. This is in buses. Um, on these huge buses, just round the clock, no matter what time of day. Um, and when we first went to this center, we uh, were at first asked to help with sorting some supplies. So supplies and just all kinds of things were donated in these huge, huge boxes and just kind of dumped in various places. Um, and these Box, the crates that you can see in the bottom right are actually, those are all full of medical supplies and medicines that have just kind of been brought in from all over the world. And since I am a doctor and have a uh, master's in pharmacology, it just so happened that someone there asked us if we have any experience with medications. And I was like, yes, why I do. Um, and so we ended up assuming the job at first of sorting medications and basically creating a pharmacy for the on point, uh, what they call medical point. Um, so here are some pictures of us. So this is before I'd like, or well, those are diapers, but before, and then the process of sorting um, and more sorting, some of our methods, more sorting, and then after we uh, created these 
the the pharmacy essentially in the medical point. So I just wanted to go through some pictures of that. And there was everything from fentanyl to Xanax and everything just kind of hanging around, which was an interesting experience, especially having worked in the US. Um, and then these are some pictures of the clinic. And then as you can see, the donations did dwindle over time. Um, okay, but now back to back to you. So as you can imagine, seeing some of those pictures, things were extremely, extremely disorganized. Um, there was no, it was an unprecedented time. Obviously there were millions of people coming into the country and to their credit, the, the Polish government did a pretty darn good job getting things put together to, to just be able to house and feed the folks that were coming in. But what we primarily noticed is the fact that there was no system in place at all. There was nobody there that was kind of in charge. So quite honestly, we took it upon ourselves to be in charge because nobody else uh, wanted to assume that role. So as Madeline showed you with the with the with the warehouse um, filled with medical supplies from all over the world, they had no idea how to accomplish the task of getting that all those medical supplies from Spain, from France, from Germany, from England, from the frankly the United States didn't have all that much stuff that they sent in that batch anyway. But we noticed, in fact, that the United States was less represented than other places in general, which was a little bit uh, confusing. I'm not really sure how that happened. We never could quite understand why other countries were so well represented and the United States wasn't. But in any case, uh, you can see all the flags from the different countries that, that were there trying to help the people checking in, the refugees checking into the center were aided by the UK government, Belgian government, Canadian, Spanish, um, but no US was there. But in any case, we tried to put ourselves in a position of you know, being flexible, doing whatever it was that was needed. Fortunately, Madeline's medical skills in particular were extremely useful. And we did, as she said, put together that the medicines from all over the world. And then that sort of evolved into actually working in the medical point itself, which was something like an urgent care, but just a complete and total the most basic, in fact, that's kind of right next to where, do you have pictures now in the uh, clinic area? Uh, anyway, the medical point was very, very rudimentary. I mean, there was very little kind of infrastructure. In fact, some of the things that were just so incredibly um, noticeable, oh, there's a picture. Okay, so that's the little medical point. Um, one of the things that we really had trouble with was just manning the place at all because there were very limited doctors. They had medics, but very few doctors, certainly in the middle of the night when a lot of the emergencies happened in the middle of the night and there was nobody there other than most of the time, just us. So, um, and there was, no, uh, that's the entrance to it. There was no way to clean up the mess. They didn't have the most basic supplies, paper towels. I mean, people were pooping and vomiting and peeing and everything all over the place. And we had no place to, no way to even get the mess cleaned up because there were no supplies. So we went to, oh, the equivalent of Target or Walmart. 
and ran over there and and grabbed paper towels and sanitizer and you know just whatever we could so in other words we did things that range from sorting pharmaceuticals to buying supplies at the local target uh that's our that was our filing system as you can see nothing i mean they they had no filing system we had to use we had to take all the 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 questionnaires the well as you can see there i am sorting the actual questionnaires the intake yeah, forms the intake forms were generally somewhat optional or perceived as optional um and collected just in in these paper forms and uh put in trash bags each day which yes was their filing system <laughs> yes there there so there was no system essentially so we created the best system that we could with the limited resources that we had we did the best there's a ukrainian doctor that came to help for a while he was there and that's one of the issues that we had as well there was no system as i said there really was no organized system so everybody just kind of came together and did the best they could the canadians here we are with the canadians that came uh for a while but uh, this, the canadians were great but they came in rotations of one or two weeks sometimes so we had and we were the longest term volunteers there so we had to teach them everything that we knew which was you know not a whole lot but we did the best we could and so we would explain to them how things worked and there wasn't a and there we are with a group of people from other countries and from poland afghan there were afghan refugees that needed help as well actually um anyway and so we basically just all did the best we could and we tried to structure things so that things would work even when we left we don't know the current condition of the Modolinska of this particular expo um but we think that it's still running the way that it more or less was though the Polish government has now opted out of funding that expo so it's private it's private donations that are keeping this place going and we're hoping that uh that things are still going because there's great 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 need as you can imagine just tremendous 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 need the, the the refugees come in with everything from you know gun unhealed gunshot wounds shrapnel wounds to tuberculosis to chickenpox measles mumps we saw everything german measles we saw every kind of infectious disease covid obviously just absolutely everything came through and madeline and i were there trying to do the best we could and she was a doctor so she could help them to a certain extent but the Again, the infrastructure was so minimal, and so Madeline, what tell, why don't you tell what you saw in the problem with infectious diseases? Because that's a worldwide problem that that we yeah. that really needs to be addressed. What would yeah. you say? Um, so, with infectious diseases, it was a really interesting experience for me because these kinds of diseases are things that I learned about in medical school and in residency training, but had never seen most things. Like most American trainees have not seen chickenpox. Um, but yes, we apparently we have learned that Ukraine has one of the lowest that or does have the lowest vaccination rate in Europe for just baseline vaccinations. And when I say vaccines, I'm not referring to COVID. Um, and so, and, and there's a lot of vaccine hesitation. Childhood vaccines. 
yes, childhood vaccines, measles, mumps, rubella. Um, and so we actually ended up seeing quite a few cases of, of chicken pox. There was a major chicken pox outbreak, mumps, um, and uh, measles. And the scariest part about it to me is like the, the kids that we saw ended up doing okay. Um, but the scariest part is the potential for resurgence of vaccine preventable diseases, because it doesn't matter what a child is coming into this warehouse with, it's going to spread like wildfire. You see how close together those beds are. There are porta potties for bathroom. There's, it's impossible to keep up, you know, social distance or any of those things. It, it's just impossible in these conditions. So as soon as one person comes in, everybody gets it. And then we have all of these embassies that are helping people relocate all over the world. And there's there was really no uh, monitoring of who was sick and who was going where. Um, and so that was something that was scary for us and and really eye-opening as far as the important uh, importance of giving vaccines. Um, so that was something that we tried to work with actually the US Embassy to get vaccines available at the expo, at the medical center. Um, but there are a lot of kind of bureaucratic hoops that you have to jump through. And so we were not able to do that. Um, but that is something in the future that we would love to do because there's this catch 22 Poland requires that you have vaccinations for the children to enter schools, etc. Um, and at the same time, they make it so difficult to, to get a vaccination over there because it's required to be given by a physician while in the United States, we usually have, um, like a medical student can give it to you or certainly a nurse. Um, administering a vaccine is, is something simple. So it, we noticed a lot of like small, simple gaps that need to be filled and are still working on how to address some of those things. Um, yeah, that was, that was. Elena Ballin, I, I understand that you're planning to go back uh, to Poland and continue uh, working. Will you be going back to this same uh, facility, or are you going back to a, a, another uh, situation? We had been in actually Pat, uh, several different facilities till we finally kind of landed permanently, it seems, in this one, the Modolinska Expo. Uh, we will go definitely go back to this one. There are some other facilities that are kind of offshoots of this facility, because what, what the government is trying to do is get people out of these giant refugee centers and have them get into some sort of more permanent housing. Some, there are sort of halfway houses almost, if you can look at it that way. Some of the people that were in this Modolinska Expo went to a different place or went to several different places, ones in which we also helped, but this was our primary location. Um, women and children obviously were the main uh, population. But the other locations did primarily pregnant women and newborns. So there are several locations because there were a lot of pregnant women and there were a lot of newborns. And um, this giant center, you know, there were these like little tiny babies being exposed also. These constant, as Madeline was just pointing out, this constant barrage of not just childhood infectious diseases, but every kind of disease, adult diseases, every everything was, you know, just kind of 
scattered around in this giant thing. So they were trying to limit, I think that was one of the objectives was trying to limit the infectious disease passing rate, the transmission rate by trying to isolate people more in smaller housing, because of course you can't do that in these giant centers, as Madeline said, you know, you, you, you diagnose somebody with chicken pox and then they just go right back out into the 5,000 right. strong what, group. What was what was your sense of the scale of the uh, refugee situation? We, we understand that, uh, and these are uh, out of date numbers, but three and a half million refugees from Ukraine uh, were landed in uh, in Poland alone, and, and we spoke with the Irish ambassador last week, and 30,000 uh, Ukrainian refugees are in, in Ireland. So um, I, how, how do we get our arms around the magnitude of uh, the uh, the refugee humanitarian situation across Europe stemming from the invasion of Ukraine? Maybe that's not an answerable question, but yeah, what, did you have a sense uh, when you talked to people there uh, was Poland overwhelmed uh, or were they dealing with things adequately? Uh, you know, we see the crowded warehouse, uh, but clearly people were were in shelter, they were being fed and they had uh, medical care. Uh, you know, we see refugee situations around the world where refugees are not that fortunate. Poland was definitely yes. very overwhelmed at the beginning. And it wasn't just like with the refugee centers, but... Um, the tra everybody talked about the traffic like the city just felt like a different place warsaw itself almost doubled in population within uh, a couple of weeks and it would they were definitely very overwhelmed in the beginning um and so because nobody was prepared for this it's not like there were existing refugee centers for people to come into it all happened so suddenly and certainly europe isn't a place where you would typically think that you would need to be prepared for a situation like this. Um, so they were overwhelmed at first. I think it's gotten, I think it's gotten better. Um, and the government did a great job responding. Like the first refugee center that we worked at was originally an ice skating rink. And the ice skating rink just became a, um, a, a one of those warehouses with beds. Sure. Um, I think that there that it's gotten better and that the country is more prepared now for incoming people, but at the same time it's tough because kind of international interest is is dwindling and people are still coming. We I, sense that anyway, yeah. I don't yeah. we don't know that it is, but we we had a sense of uh less interest over time. And and certainly things got better, I would say during the time that we were there, which was about seven months worth overall. And at the beginning, things were utterly chaotic in the city itself and the railway station and, you know, all the, every place was just completely overwhelmed. But I do think that the city did seem to get back to normal probably a few months later. And it seems pretty normal now when we just left, it was, it seemed relatively normal, but you still go into these giant refugee centers and see lots and lots of of people there, thousands of people. So I think they've just gotten better at concealing it, frankly. I'm not sure that it's yeah. disappeared, but they've absorbed them a little bit better than they did at the beginning, of course, because they've gotten more accustomed. But I don't know. Um, Anna can probably speak to what's going on in terms of the movement of refugees leaving the country 
Now we noticed that there were a lot of people going back, but then equal numbers coming back in. So I'm not really sure where it stands now. Maybe. Yeah, maybe I was just Anna about to adjust. ask uh, Anna to uh, to jump back in and talk to us about the uh, what what the refugee uh, flight looks like. Uh, you know, months into the the war. Uh, but first, I want to remind. Uh, our viewers that uh, this is the In Focus uh, program series, Russia's Invasion of Ukraine. Uh, there are numerous uh, episodes from uh, the series on our website, tnwac.org. Uh, this is a public service of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. If you appreciate uh, these kinds of programs, uh, take a look on the website, tnwac.org, to become a member of the council or uh, support us with uh, your donation. Um, Anna, uh, and, and again, we're talking with uh, uh, Amanda Bird and Dr. Madeline Bird and Anna Novosad uh, from her car in Kiev, um, uh, braving the cold and uh, the lack of electricity at home. So she's out uh, hunting uh, Wi-Fi and cell connections. Uh, Anna, what, what does it feel like uh, in Kiev um, with uh, over 6 million Ukrainians having fled the country uh, presumably most from the east. You talked about the orphan children uh, in the areas that were reclaimed after the Russians had, had occupied those territories. Uh, what, what's your sense of the humanitarian, the magnitude of the humanitarian uh, situation there regarding refugees? Well, uh, Ukraine is a large country. It's invasion of Russia, we had uh, roughly 40 million people, right? So um, it, it's hard to um, put the same tag on every region. Here in Kyiv, I would say that it's still it still feels like around 30% of people uh, have left um, or maybe just a, a bit more. However, uh, obviously in uh, the rest of the cities that have been either uh, shelled or uh, have been under occupation, uh, the situation is very uh, is very different here in the north in Chernihiv. It's a large, uh, pre pretty big uh, city in the north. Uh, I would say they had before the war two hundred fifty thousand people. Now they have roughly one hundred ninety thousand people. Um, but of course, the war situation is uh, further to the east and to the south. There are a lot of uh, towns. Uh, uh, large towns and villages that are just completely void. People have uh, left those either uh, during uh, evacuation uh, periods or after uh, liberation because those territories are unfortunately uh, not um, livable and that situation is caused by so many factors. Uh, you can you, you probably have seen how many um, art artillery um, shells and ammunition is, is fired daily by Russians. It's it's roughly 60,000, um, I don't know how you call it, like pieces of ammunition or like, so in, in the total number is around that. Rounds. All of that, yeah. yeah. On the lies around um, in the water, in the rivers, polluting the, polluting the water, polluting the ground. And that's just very, very dangerous. And it's a really huge ecological challenge. So people just can't stay there. But um, a lot of people are not traveling abroad, but are just moving around the country, moving um, towards center, um, uh, towards uh, Western parts, or just at least a little bit further from, uh, from the very epicenter of uh, horror. Um, I've been, I, I have just returned uh, from Poland where I was on, on business. So, uh, 
purpose and uh, uh, here. I think Anna, uh, the situation was... Anna, your, your signal is having a little trouble. I'm, I'm going to uh, pass a question from uh, one of our uh, attendees. And uh, this is for uh, Madeline and uh, Elena. Um, what was roughly the number of volunteers and medical staff supporting the uh, the Expo uh, facility, uh, the Motolinska uh, facility in, in Warsaw? What was the staff? I would love to answer that. So um, I, I think I forgot to mention, but the general patient or um, number of residents was usually around 5,000. So there's 5,000 refugees in there. And as far as the medical staff, so there was a medical point technically open 24 hours. Um, as far as employees, maybe one EMS, one doctor technically at a time. Um, and then volunteers, it was super variable. Um, the thing that made it really was nice at times that also difficult is sometimes you would go from one doctor to having 15 providers available as some of the volunteer groups came in. Um, and so it, that, that was a challenge because those people, it's great to have so many numbers, but they also were only coming for a week at a time. So we found that um, difficult because um, as soon as they're starting to get to know the system, they're out and then another group comes in. And um, so sometimes it would be quite a lot, but typically for sure, at least two people. That, that's the only thing that I can say for sure, two people, um, two employees. And something that was really highly needed um, was translators because Polish people do, Ukrainians appear to speak much better English than the Polish, in my opinion. Um, and, and so there's just this huge language barrier um, and um, there were, I don't know if there were ever formally paid translators, it was mostly volunteers, but it, it was a beautiful experience in many ways because honestly, may, like a third of the, the residents of the refugee center would also take on volunteer duties, which was awesome. And so there would be people who were experiencing all this and then would come put on their little yellow vest and work as a translator. Uh, a volunteer translator in the medical center. Um, so a good percentage of the staff was refugees themselves. Uh, yeah, Anna, that's uh, true, actually. Go ahead, Sorry. Anna. No, I was just gonna add to what Madeline just said. I the the There would be at times loads of people in the middle of the day, but then not a soul in the middle of, or after say eight or nine o'clock at night, which was a huge problem because that's when a lot of kids seem to want to have their issues, <laughs> having been a mother myself. And so at two o'clock in the morning, there was nobody there except for us. Often that would happen. There wasn't a single solitary soul, except maybe a random translator, as Madeline said. One of the things that I, in fact, noticed that people probably need to, there needs to be more of a, a way to explain to people that come in at, from these large groups because they know absolutely nothing and they don't know even the most basic 
terminology or what's going on there. There must be some way, and I don't know, maybe with Anna's educational things or whatever going on, there must be some way to try to at least, for example, identify, as Madeline was saying, people that speak English within the refugee population. That was an awesome place to go find people that spoke English, you know, translators, that's where you could go find them, but nobody kind of sure. thought of that idea. We finally did think of that idea, but I mean, that would have been a great place to go, or even medical staff or people with medical knowledge could have been brought in from the actual refugee population to help out or something like that. I mean, there weren't any, there was no way to get that to happen other than we just did our best to try to make stuff like that happen. But I do yeah. think that that the biggest issue I felt was like uh, scheduling shifts. There was no scheduling of time when people are going to be there. And then you have the American group, you have the Canadian group, you have the Polish people and the Ukrainian people, and uh, most of them don't speak the same language. And then everything is scheduled on different languages. And, and if someone can't come in, you just think, oh, well, those other volunteers will be there. So yeah, um, I can imagine uh, managing chaos uh, is, is one of the biggest challenges in those facilities. And Anna, you're back with us. Uh, let me uh, share a couple of questions uh, for you. I'll, I'll pass two along so you can uh, hop from one to the other. Uh, Nick McCall, our uh, Tennessee World Affairs Council member over in Knoxville, uh, he asks uh, if you could characterize uh, the top humanitarian needs in Ukraine that uh, the United States can help with. You know, we see in the news here a lot uh, military uh, shipments and the amount of a budget and, and so forth. But in practical terms, what, what sorts of things uh, are needed there in Ukraine that uh, the West can provide and, and assist with either governmentally or through private organizations? And, and feel free to mention also uh, your education work. And I'll mention uh, to our viewers that we will pass uh, additional information on that effort uh, to them uh, after the uh, the program is over. Uh, but the, uh, the other piece was, uh, uh, Professor uh, Thomas Schwartz, a distinguished historian at Vanderbilt, where you were a fellow, uh, he asks, uh, is there any room for compromise with Russia on its peace demands, or are they completely unacceptable at the present for Ukrainian leaders and Ukrainian people? Uh, for example, would uh, there be uh, some agreement uh, to accept uh, a plebiscite in the uh, eastern areas uh, that were uh, under contention in, in Crimea, for, for example? So uh, I'll let you... Uh, and uh, Lord willing, the, the cell phone uh, gods will be with us and uh, you can take those two questions. <laughs> right, uh, so on the, thank you. Thank you, Patrick, and thank you uh, for the questions uh, on the humanitarian uh, needs. Uh, so it's still winter in Ukraine. It's, it's pretty cold and uh, most probably February was gonna be worse. And with this electricity outages, uh, generators uh, is something that is just, uh, must have and um, I would say that's the uh, need number one um, here in Ukraine. It's very hard to buy it here because of the very uh, short supply and the demand is uh, huge. Uh, so uh, all sorts of winterization uh, things from generators, uh, heaters, uh, blankets, uh, things like that that can help people uh, to survive um, the colds. Then obviously we are all dependent on Elon Musk and his uh, Starlinks because that's the only thing that uh, during the outages and during the couple of days uh, blackouts keeps us connected to to the outer world. Uh, even though that's that's expensive and um, uh, and Mr. Musk also uh, provides some some of them for, for free to Ukraine. 
Uh, apart from that, on, on education side, I would I would certainly say that we do need quite a lot of uh, learning um, devices, learning materials from um, from even the cheapest tablets uh, to um, yeah all sorts of learning materials and didactics that can uh, keep children uh, occupied and keep them um, keep their access uh, to um, uh, education. Uh, we in SAFED have uh, have started a couple of partnerships with the U.S. Um, schools, uh, regular uh, schools, and some of them high schools, uh, to provide um, to collect books and 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 ship them, or to collect money and to procure um, here tablets. So things like that. Uh, on the second question, um, you know. Um, Looking retrospectively, would you say that appeasement of Hitler would work, right? Would you ask the question whether there could be any settlement with Hitler? I think uh, it's, it's a fairly easy question uh, to ask if we uh, look into historical retrospective, and there cannot be any compromise with Russia. It has been there for those, for this last 30 years. It has been there since 2014 when Russia occupied Crimea, and the whole world, the whole world, was supportive of that because the whole world said nothing apart from very lame um, sanctions. Uh, that doesn't mean that there was not our fault that we couldn't uh, protect Crimea in terms of, uh, you know, um, getting it back in an ardent way, but that's the whole different story. So um, there, ca there cannot be any compromise because if you leave to Putin at least an inch of our territory, there will be another war in, in five years. There will be another war in, in three years when Russia once Russia recovers and once the whole world just forgets about the, the genocide that is happening to us here uh, every day. So I think the history is the, is the biggest teacher in, in this whole story. And as I said, this war can only end in peace that is uh, just, that, right? That, that there's justice in everything that happens afterwards, afterwards. And justice means that Russia leaves all of our territories, including Crimea, there are reparations and there is tribunal uh, over Putin and his uh, and his um, uh, and all those who who uh, who did all this horrible um, deeds uh, here um, in Ukraine. So no, I think there cannot be any compromise. And also those people that you mentioned in the east of Ukraine. Uh, let's imagine experiment, right? You put people for uh, by now nine years into complete uh, informational blackout. You feed them blatant lies and propaganda that Ukrainians are Nazi, that Ukrainians are eating kids for breakfast, that Ukrainians, I don't know, that uh, uh, we, 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 we kill those who speak Russian. So all those has been fed to these people for nine years. Of course, they will hate us. Of course, they will want to, want to be with Russia. And of course, if you give them right to vote, they will vote against Ukraine. So you cannot uh, underestimate the power of propaganda because power of propaganda is what uh, led to this war because the entire Russia, and I can say that for sure because I have unfortunately so many relatives in Moscow, around 15 of that. And those bastards there to call me and ask why we bomb our cities, why we kill our people, right? Because these people, despite being ethnically Ukrainian, they believe in what they are uh, told over Russian TV. And the same thing happened to people in the east of Ukraine and the same thing happened to uh, people in Crimea. And once these territories are back, I'm pretty sure that they cannot have a right to vote for next 10 years or next 15 years. And there has to be a strategy of uh, uh, reintegration of these territories because it's it's a matter of our political uh, survival. Um, 
Anna, uh, thank you for that. Um, it, it's a powerful testimony to what's what's happening in Ukraine and uh, the international situation. Uh, we're uh, close to running out of time. What I'd like to do is uh, ask uh, each of you uh, to take about a minute and share your closing comments, your reflections on your experiences and, and on behalf of the audience and the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Uh, thanks uh, not just for your insights and perspectives, but for uh, being on the ground, uh, uh, helping as best you can uh, your fellow uh, uh, humans uh, deal with uh, this uh, catastrophe of, of the making of uh, the Russian government. Um, Elena and then uh, Madeline and then uh, Anna, uh, if you could take a minute each and, and uh, provide us with uh, your closing comments. Uh, thanks, Pat. I guess my major closing comment would be there's just vast, vast humanitarian aid needed, medical aid, just general humanitarian aid. And I I would hope that people would respond by trying to get to the right place to give that kind of aid, which is a complicated problem, by the way, too, because there were a lot of sketchy characters over there. You don't know where your money's going sometimes. It's one of the reasons we wanted to be on the ground because we could see where our money was going. <clears throat> we knew exactly where it was going. And I think that if people could try to put together some, I don't know, some sort of a network of reliable sources of information that can tell you where your actual donations are going, that would be incredibly helpful too, because there are a lot of people, it's kind of, these situations bring out the best of humanity and the worst of humanity, sadly. And um, and there are people that do take advantage of the situation, but there is just tremendous, tremendous, tremendous need. Um, we need to help, we need to do what we can. We've tried to do what we could, but I would hope that others would, would step in and try to do what they can as well. That would be my, and that's what I have like to say. It's probably, there's no end in sight from what I can tell. This isn't going to end sometime soon. It's, and there's still going to be displaced people. Um, and so I think actually developing a streamlined organization system is important and beneficial because this is still happening a year later. Thanks, Marilyn. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Anna. Yeah, uh, thank you. Well, the last thing uh, for me, you know, um, it, it was mentioned uh, then w w when you girls came to Poland, you you just saw uh, this huge chaos and someone had to take responsibility, right? I think the same thing happened on the international agenda when this war started uh, and Ukrainians started to fight back and no one believed that we could uh, we could survive at least three days. And it was the United States of America who took responsibility on international um, in international community to stand uh, against uh, Russia and stand against uh, this 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 uh, horrible war of uh, not only Putin but of the whole Russian people who supported predominantly. So I just want to say thank you uh, for the uh, for all your support to all people of uh, United States. Uh, you cannot even imagine what a huge support and and gratitude is here um uh, to the united states and today uh right now probably my friends just texting me everyone those tanks being sent to us and and uh a few weeks ago we had this patriot anti-missile system thing and for us it's not just you know some hype thing we understand that this is something that will protect each of us every day against uh against someone who wants to come here and just uh, erase us 
as a nation. Uh, I see here uh, a lot of people who are, like predominantly I see here only people who are willing to walk as long as, as they can and then as long as it's needed, right? So for us, this war uh, is like that. We will fight it back as long as we can and, and then as long as it's needed, but we count support of those who are sharing our, uh, our values for, for freedom and uh, the ability and right to choose ourselves, the lives that we want to lead that are that are free just and also um democratic so thank you very much once again and uh uh thank you very much nashville and nashville you know uh, last thing uh, tennessee has this motto of being the volunteer state and i think this is something that we share uh, quite in common with ukraine because ukraine has turned into a one huge uh, state as well thank you very much for for listening to us today Anna, Madeline, uh, Elena, uh, thanks so much for your, your time today to share these important stories with our audience. And uh, again, uh, we uh, appreciate everything you've done on the ground there. Uh, this is uh, our In Focus, Russia Invasion of Ukraine. It's a series that we started a year ago. You can find more uh, from this series on our website, tnwac.org. And while you're there, uh, please take uh, time to become a member of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Uh, we're an all-volunteer organization based here in Nashville, and we appreciate uh, your support uh, as members and uh, your donations uh, to make these programs possible. Uh, we'd like to thank our, uh, uh, our partners, the uh, Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce, Belmont University, uh, Pinnacle Financial Partners, and uh, all of our members who uh, support our work. Uh, you can find a recording of this uh, broadcast uh, to share with your friends on uh, youtube.com slash TNWAC slash videos and also on our TNWAC.org website. Please share this program with others. Uh, when you uh, are on the YouTube site, please uh, make a comment. Give us a thumbs up so we get uh, more people coming to the site and uh, back to uh, uh, our program. So we appreciate it. And uh, as, as Nick McCall just put in the comments, Slava Ukraini. Um, uh, Anna, uh, uh, you and your countrymen are, are in the hearts of uh, Americans and, and uh, we're, we're proud to be able to do uh, any little part we can to help. Um, Elena Madeline, thanks for uh, representing Nashville, the, the volunteers in, in such a, a stunningly uh, successful fashion and best uh, luck when you go back and continue your work. That's it. I'm Patrick Ryan, president of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. We appreciate you uh, joining us today, and we look forward to uh, upcoming programs that you can find on our website. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day.